Okay. Um, great to get people's news. Um, I mean, John's story is just inspiring. Um, uh, George's story is encouraging. And uh, uh, Simon and Kim, it, it's, it's sad, but it makes sense, what you've said. And uh, um, you will be missed because you were uh, right at the, I suppose, the, the front edge, the cutting edge of this church, seeing it built. And um, it's not been an easy ride. Um, but actually, God's been with you, and God will continue to be with you. So, um, you know, we do bless you as you go. I hope you're all doing good. We, I've been away for a, a lot of the summer, uh, but to be truthful, it's great to be back in your own church. We've been to different places. Um, in fact, two weeks ago, we were in Alton Towers. Um, I'd rather be in church than in Alton Towers, I've got to be honest. Uh, um, some of you might not think that, but Alton Towers is a traumatic place. If you're a 46-year-old man and you're not used to rides. So we turned up at Alton Towers, um, and I'm not... Uh, I've been on rides before. I've been to Chesington, yeah? I've been to fairgrounds. And uh, I turned up at Alton Towers, and I think we just got caught up in the momentum of the moment. And on the first morning, we arrived early, and we, uh, um, we got there early, and, and um, we were able to go into rides early, like an hour early, so we got in there, and we, we were running around trying to find a particular ride, and we couldn't find it, and we ended up by a couple of other rides. And just, just because we were there, and the man said to us, look, the park opens in about five minutes, you may as well hang around here, for these rides, rather than go to the other place where you'll miss out. We said, okay, okay, we'll just hang around. And, and, and so we, we came to this ride called Rita, yeah? And what we hadn't done is we hadn't looked about rides before, yeah? I didn't know anything about the rides at Alton Towers. Um, uh, I didn't know. I just thought, okay, we're at Rita, yeah? Rita looked like, it just looked like a normal roller coaster. Yeah, and a small one, a small one. And so we thought, okay. So we got in line, and uh, we're, we're queuing up, and my love and I were standing there waiting for Rita. Um, and the people before us got on Rita, and this was, this was the first inkling that something wasn't right. Yeah? The people before us got onto Rita, and we're standing waiting for them. And, and we watched these... Um, these lights go, you know, like in a, if you're in a motor car, in a, in a, you know, like in the Grand Prix, they go red, 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 green, yeah? And I thought, that's strange, they've got these lights there. Um, we watched the lights go, and we watched this roller coaster go, <laughs> and I was like, whoa. <laughs> I was like, did you just see Rita? That went, that really moved, and I was like, okay, okay, we're... <laughs> And before we had a chance to really think about it or talk about it, we were on. Yeah? And so I'm like, okay, um, we're, we're on Rita. And I thought, this goes pretty quickly to begin with. I didn't know that. I'm just sitting there. It's not, it doesn't feel particularly safe. Um, so I'm, I'm holding on because I'm bracing myself because I know what's going to happen. So I'm, I'm holding on to Rita, thinking to myself, 
okay, I mean, you hadn't thought through this, had you? <laughs> and, and you don't normally do things just like this. So I'm holding on, and Rita goes, and I'm like, yeesh, I'm all literally, I am all over the place. And I'm like, uh, I was so scared I couldn't scream. Yeah, I was so scared I couldn't scream. I'm being flung around like this. And I'm thinking, God, what am I doing on here? What am I doing here? And, uh, and so um, it doesn't last long. But it, it literally, it throws you about. So I came off and I was like, oh, my life, what just happened to me? Yeah, and so we, we got off, and, and I'm now, I'm a bit traumatised, I am, because I was a bit shocked. Anyway, I'll, I'll be really quick. We go and we speak to the guy as we get off Rita, and I'm like, whoa, what happened there? And he said, oh, he said, you should try this other ride, it's not as fast. And I'm like, okay, okay, so um, I'm with the family, and, and you know, I'm, I'm trying to be dad and all that kind of stuff. Um, so we go on to this other ride called 13. And I'm like, okay, it might not be as fast, but it looks pretty big, this 13. And I, again, I'm a little bit like naive here. Anyway, we, we go on 13, and okay, it's not as fast as Rita, but it's still beyond my speed, yeah? <laughs> it's still out of my comfort zone, but, but, but on this one, I was at least able to scream. Yeah, and so you know, I, sc I screamed, help, help, as 13 whizzed around, we come to a particular point on the ride, and I'm going to give it away if you haven't been, you come to a point on the ride where the ride drops, yeah, and then it drops again, and you, uh, we've not looked at it, so we don't know that, so I'm sitting there, and the ride drops, I'm, ah! I'm literally screaming the place down, it drops, it, in the end it probably drops about six foot, and then it whizzes backwards in the dark. And I'm like, are you joking? It pulls up, it pulls up, and remember we're only halfway through the ride, it pulls up and I'm trying to get out, yeah? But this would be dangerous, yeah? But I'm trying to get out the ride because uh, I'm like, are oh, you joking? So anyway, we go through, we go through 13, we come off the ride and that's it. Yeah, I can't do rides. Yeah, I say to the family, I will hold the handbag. I don't care. I will support you from the side. I can't do the rides. Yeah, and it was the making of the girls. They loved it. But I got to be honest, even thinking back, I would rather have been at Beacon <laughs> at that moment. Um, but we had a great time. Apart from that, traumatic for me, but we had, we had a great time. And then we did, I had, I had to go on one other ride the next day, and they got this picture of me, um, uh, like with my mouth open, my eyes wide, because I'm screaming as I'm going on this ride, because that was how I responded. Yeah. So we went to Alton Towers, that was great. I had took some study leave. Um, first week, didn't actually get a lot done. Second week, I went away to pray. I was down at Ashburnham praying. Uh, for two or three days. Uh, it was just great. God was really sort of meeting and speaking to me. There was one particular time I was down at Ashburnham and I was in a prayer room and they had a map of London and I was praying, God, give us Brixton. Give us Brixton. And uh, it was a bold prayer, to be honest. I, I, I haven't always prayed that because Brixton's quite a wild place. You know, you hear about things even while you're away. You hear about things. And, um, but I was praying, God, give us and so, um, yeah, it was, you know, I, I had a great time there. Pauline and I, we were away last weekend at the, the, the Newgrounds Church's sort of weekend away. 
Um, really, for us, it was just time together, and it was, it was really nice to spend some time uh, together and to spend some time away. What I'm going to do this morning um, in, in the time we have left is I'm going to read two passages of Scripture, and then I'm going to... Uh, actually, I'm just going to give us a little, a tiny, tiny bit of a history lesson. Now, I'm not, I'm not a historian. I'm not a lecturer. Um, and it's only going to be the history that I want to share. So, um, But it's going to be a little bit about about the church. Um, and really, behind it is this question, how did we get here? How did we get here? And I don't mean, how did you get here this morning? Uh, some of you came by bus or car or walked. I don't mean that. I don't even mean, how did Beacon get here? But how did, how did a church like Beacon get here? A church made up of people from different nations and different backgrounds, a church where we uh, openly accept the work of the Holy Spirit, a church which is a church plant into an a-, a new area, how did it get here? Because I can tell you this for nothing, 100 years ago, 50 years ago, even 40 years ago, there was no church like Beacon in the world. No church like Beacon in the world. So how do we get here? What's happened that's brought a church like Beacon almost out of nothing. It wasn't even a thought in somebody's eye. It was only sitting in the heart of God. How does it get here? I'm going to read two scriptures to just sort of, I suppose, anchor the talk. I'm not particularly talking out of them, but they are both relevant to what I want to say. And the first is in Acts chapter 2, and it says this. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in tongues as the Spirit enabled them. One of the simple answers to how we got here is because of the Holy Spirit. That's how we got here. We didn't get here because, because, um, you know, King's Church was clever. We didn't get here because God or or somebody has paid you guys to, why don't you go to this church for a little while? We'll give you £25 a week to go to that church. No, No one's done that. We got here simply because of the Holy Spirit. And we will know, won't we, if you're a Christian, that the Holy Spirit... Is, is Jesus with us? Yeah? So Jesus was with us in, in physical form. When he went away, he said, look, I must go because I'm going to send another. And it's going to be the Holy Spirit. And he will reveal all truth to you. He will lead you into all truth. And we know it's the Holy Spirit that emboldened the disciples. Now, we also know that when the disciples got emboldened, they went out. Well, actually, they didn't go out initially. They stayed in Jerusalem. They hung around together. People were saved and added. It was only after persecution in Acts 8 that they go anywhere. Until that point, they're just loving one another. They were all together in one place. They loved one another. They loved Jesus. They loved God. uh, But they were together. They were feared by the people. Some people were joining them. But they weren't going anywhere. It was persecution that pushed the church out. Yeah? And when that persecution came and the church went out, they got scattered all over the place. And it tells us a bit later in Acts 
that some of them, they went and they were just beginning to share the message with other Jews. Some of them began to speak to Greeks, it says. It tells us in sort of Acts 11, Acts 12. Some of them began to speak to Greeks. So they've gone out, they're being scattered a little bit, but what you find before long is that those scatterings become groups again. They become groups. They scatter from Jerusalem, but they become groups again. And you begin to see the other thing that God was doing. He's poured out this spirit, but he's forming the church. Right from the very beginning, he was forming the church. He wasn't forming lots and lots of individual believers going about doing their own thing. He was forming communities of believers who were where, through which his spirit would dwell and through which people would understand something about who he is. Because he had already told his disciples, hadn't he, in the Great Commission, that you are to go into all the world, yeah, make disciples, so make people who follow, baptize and teach them. That's a relationship thing. It wasn't something that you could just do on the hoof. He was forming believers. Why? Because God has always been about a people. He's never been about lots of individuals doing lots of individual things. He's always been about gathering a people. You read it in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. God sort of reached out to them. And then in the New Testament, he begins to gather a people by his spirit. And they begin to congregate into communities. I'm just going to read one other passage. This is from Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 3. And it says this, verse 8. Paul writes, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. His intent was that now, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known. So God poured out the Holy Spirit. He then scattered the people, giving them a commission to go, but he then began to gather them again into communities. And they were communities called the church. And you'll know, because many of you would have, you'd have read the Bible and you'd know that after Acts we get lots of books called epistles and they are, they are letters to churches. They're not random thoughts, they're letters to churches, to communities of believers. God gathered them that way in order to demonstrate something about who he is. And in order that his Holy Spirit might dwell with them, and that being the mark that they are saved or not saved. That's, that's the mark of the church, is that the Holy Spirit dwells with us. Oh, we've got to covet the Holy Spirit. We must covet the Holy Spirit because it's very easy today to build churches that are really, really friendly communities. It's really easy to do that. Coffee and croissants and cake and stuff. Yeah? And I like, I, I like those. You know. I like those things. Yeah? But my goodness, if that's the church, we've missed something. Yeah? What distinguishes the church is the presence of God. It must be. It must be the distinguishing mark. Because these days, more and more people are building community. They don't need the church. You don't need God to build community. You can just go and build community. But if you want to build community in which he dwells, you build the church. Why? Because that's the community that he started. So we have a really simple philosophy here at Beacon, particularly on a Sunday. 
We pursue the presence of God in our worship. That's what we do. We preach the word of God from our pulpit and we respond to the voice of God. That's what we do. We do the stuff before and after and I love doing the stuff before and after. But if we took away this stuff, that stuff is meaningless. It's meaningless. So I'm here looking forward to this next period of church life because God has been good to us. He's been good to us as a church. I I really commend and appreciate the other elders at Beacon, Phil and Ben, if you didn't know. Phil, people know who you are. Ben, why don't you put your hand up because people don't know who you are. The other elders, because, because unity of the spirit through the bond of peace is really helpful. Yeah, to have guys that you are united with is really helpful, and we have that. I really appreciate the hard work so many of you put in to serve in the community by building the church, which is our motto. We serve the community through building the church. Some people might think, oh, what do you mean you serve the community through building the church? The best way we can serve Brixton is to build a church that's grace-filled and spirit-filled. The best thing we can do. So that the Johns of this world can go out and all of us can go out and we've got somebody somewhere to bring people back to so that we can disciple them, teaching them everything. That's what we're doing. So I commend those of you who serve. I commend those of you who pray. Yeah? To be honest, I didn't grow up praying. I used to pray before I went to the prayer meeting that God would give me the courage to pray at the prayer meeting. That's how I began, praying. But I commend those of you who pray. I commend those of you who give. Yeah? I commend those of you who give your money and your time and you regularly do it for this church. And, and in this regard, you can commend the Simon and Kim who have prayed, who have given time and money for 10 years. Yeah? It takes something to build the church. It takes something. And God has great plans for us, as I believe God has great plans for lots of churches who honour him if only they would take hold and believe. We just had a wonderful word on uh, Tuesday that um, Becky Blackwell brought to us about the difference between Saul and the difference between David. And she said the difference was this, that David believed God. Because God promised Saul what he promised David. God said to Saul, if you hold on, if you are obedient, somebody from your line will sit on the throne forever. He promised that to Saul. But it was David who believed him. So my prayer is that we would be a church who believe him, who trust him. So I was just reflecting, how did we get here? How did, how, how did we get here? And, and, and I want to give you a little bit of a, of a, of a church history lesson. I'm not really, I was never really good at history, um, but I've made up my own little history here. Um, it comes partly out of my own reading, obviously my own books that I've read, my own experience, my own observations. And I want to do it for a few small reasons. Firstly, I'm learning, this is something I'm learning a lot, how important it is to deal with your past. Because history shapes you. And if you've come into this church with a difficult history in church and you haven't dealt with that, it won't be long before that comes up. If you've come into this church and maybe in your past church you were let down, maybe by the leaders or someone in the church, it won't be long before you're thinking, oh, I wonder if he meant that. Where you become suspicious because your history 
shapes you. It shapes you personally, but also it shapes the church. So our history shapes us as a church. And so we need to be able to look at our history and go, okay, we need to make sure that our history is not shaping us in a negative way. As Simon and Kim alluded to, this church was born out of the, of the heart of King's Church in Catford. That's where we've come from. We didn't, we didn't just fall out the sky. Yeah? God did something in the heart of the leaders there that meant in the end we planted this church. None of that is ever perfect. But learning to accept that what your history is, your history is really important if you're going to move forward in God. Secondly, I'm a great believer, and Pauline will tell you this, in stopping, reviewing, where are we, how did we get here? I'm always asking those questions. Yeah? Sometimes I think we're asking too much, too much. We've only just moved over. Where are we, how did I actually get here? Thirdly, I think some of us need to, to know a little of the recent history of the church because it will help contextualize where we are. So for us, some things are perfectly normal. Yeah? Put your hand up here if you've been filled with the Holy Spirit. Put your hand right up. Okay, so most of us. Put your hand up if you speak in tongues. Again, many of us. Some of you need to know that 40 years ago, if you spoke in tongues or claimed to be filled with the Holy Spirit, you would have been chucked out of your church. Some of you need to know that, that 50 years ago, when, when um, and it was to this area that a lot of them came, when there was massive migration from the Caribbean and from India to places to the, to the UK, and to Brixton in particular, when people went to church, they were chucked out. They weren't allowed to join. Oh, you're not welcome here. No, we, no your, your kind are not welcome here. We can forget history, and therefore we can forget what God has done. Fourthly, as always, I want to make it clear, because for me, it's about the church. I love Jesus. <laughs> yeah? I love the Holy Spirit. Yeah? But what God did was he left, as his example to the world, the church. He didn't leave millions of individuals doing their own thing. He left a community. He wanted to demonstrate to the world who he was through a community the church. So understanding our history will help. So what we're doing here in Brixton, as I say, 40 years ago, this would not have even been a thought in the mind of the most visionary pastor. It wouldn't. It wouldn't have even been in his head. See, because in those days, people didn't plant churches. Even 40 years ago, people didn't plant churches. Churches were not diverse. Churches were not attended by unbelievers. Or people who claimed, who, who claimed to be unbelievers. Sometimes it was attended by people who thought they were believers, but actually they weren't. They rarely ever came. Pastors and vicars did everything. For most people, church was literally somewhere they went on Sundays. A church like Beacon would have only existed in the mind and heart of God. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who, who was a pastor of a church not far from here in Westminster, Westminster Chapel, he said this. At the beginning of the 18th century, certain orthodox men could see, like prophetically, they could see something in the spirit, the position 
of the church falling away. And they said, what can we do to safeguard the truth? They decided to set up what they called the Boyle Lectures. They were designed to defend the Christian faith. A great bishop wrote a book, Bishop Butler's Analogy. He was going to defend the Christian faith. Another man called Paley did a similar thing, but they, similar thing, wrote a book. But they were not what saved the situation, good as they were. So these guys had prophetically seen things are falling away. The truth is being compromised. What can we do? Oh, let's write some books about the Christian faith to defend it. Do you know what? The Boyle lectures still go on. They still go on. But it wasn't them that saved the situation, good as they were. What saved the situation? It was the Holy Spirit coming upon George Whitfield at his ordination. It was John Wesley's heart being strangely warmed in Aldsgate Street on May the 24th, 1738. It was the outpouring of the Spirit of God. So when the world, it was all looking very dodgy for the church, it wasn't really good people doing really great things that saved it, it was the Holy Spirit. It was the Holy Spirit. Just over 100 years ago, there was a revival in Wales. Two of the key players in that revival were George and Stephen Jeffries, who began a movement called the Elim Pentecostal Church. The biggest Elim Pentecostal Church around today is Kensington Temple. Thousands of people attend that church. A couple of years after that Welsh revival, where, where around 100,000 people were saved during that period of time, the Welsh revival. A couple of years later, in Azusa Street in Los Angeles, an African-American preacher called William J. Seymour began a meeting which led to a revival, and it lasted until 1915, so about nine years. The Pentecostal movement comes out of that. People speaking in tongues. People experiencing the Holy Spirit. To the mainstream church, it was a little bit wacky. To the world, it was just weird. The world wasn't really interested. But it changed things. In January 1907, a Mrs. Price of Brixton opened her home to prayer meetings and spoke in tongues for the first time. Apparently, she was the first person in, the, in England to speak in tongues. How many of us put our hands up in Brixton? So 100 years later, hundreds of thousands, if not millions of Christians speak in tongues. We've moved a long way. We've moved a long way. In the late 1940s, early 1950s, you had the Hebridean Revival. Douglas Campbell, who, who led that revival at one point, said more people were being saved outside the church than in the church. People were being saved on their way to meetings. They were being convicted by the Holy Spirit. I suppose they were doing what John was doing. He's walking down the road and he suddenly discovers, he tells people about Jesus, maybe, maybe not even in the most eloquent way, and people are responding, saying, yeah, I want to know him. We would think that was revival. You know, John described like 25 people where that happened. Imagine, if, imagine as you walk down the street, hundreds of people were just coming to hear the message. You see, the Holy Spirit has been at work. Then in the 1960s, there began this new movement called the Charismatic 
movement. And the charismatic movement was different to the Pentecost movement in this sense. It was all about not just um, receiving the Holy Spirit, but it was all about the character of God, the gifts of the Spirit. It was all about receiving many of the gifts of the Spirit, not just one. It began to revive in people a longing for God, a thirst for God. And it wasn't just happening here. It was happening literally all over the world. There was a movement. Dr. Paul Yongi Cho started his church in Seoul, South Korea in the early 60s. I don't know what the numbers are now, but certainly at one point his church reached a million people. They have this place they call Prayer Mountain, which is open 24-7, and people are there all the time praying. And do you know how he began? He began by praying, and he, he discovered that if you prayed specific prayers, God answered them. So he prayed for a red bike. And God gave him a red bike. He was like, oh, how bizarre. If I pray for this, well, he began to tap into something. In the mid-1960s, there was a controversy in the church in the, UK, in the UK. It was called the Evangelical Controversy. It was a disagreement between two very well-known Christians, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones on one hand and John Stott on the other. And Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually appealed and encouraged evangelical Christians to leave mainstream churches and to go do their thing, to be evangelical, not to be part of churches where people were not like that. At the same meeting, he said that John Stock got up and rebuked him. There was respect, but he rebuked him. Whether that was intended to split the church, division came because people who were being baptized in the Holy Spirit were chucked out of churches. One of the reasons the house church movement got going was because people had nowhere to meet, so they met in their homes. You had churches where, I was talking to a friend of mine the other day, and he said, oh, in our church, this is in the 70s, he said, in our church, we lost a pastor, we were looking at a new pastor, if the pastor was filled with the Spirit, half the church were happy. If the pastor wasn't filled with the Spirit and didn't believe in it, the other half of the church wasn't happy. So it could never be decided. He said, in the end, that church, a whole load of people left who had received the gift of the Holy Spirit. They'd left, they started their own church. That church still exists. There's, there's like 20, 30 people there, but they've not experienced the Holy Spirit. This church thrived. Yeah? Wherever the Holy Spirit is embraced, the church will thrive. It will thrive. You see, until the charismatic movement Radical Christians really did one of two things. You either set up a ministry or you went on mission. Two examples. Billy Graham. Billy Graham was converted and in the 1950s began, I'm not knocking Billy Graham at all, we love, we love Billy Graham, yeah? We all love Billy Graham. I love Billy Graham. Began a ministry, the Billy Graham ministry as a traveling evangelist. He, he, was the, he was the pinnacle of it. He was the one that you see, but actually there were hundreds, there were thousands of them. Traveling evangelists, people going around, preaching the gospel in different places. He was an example of somebody. Converted, radical, wanting to serve God. On the other hand, let's go again, in the 1950s, you had Jim Elliot and four other young Americans who went to reach an unreached people group in Ecuador called the Orca Tribe. And Jim Elliot spent years, if you read his diaries, he spent years praying for this group. I mean, he was radical. I mean, I read his stories now, and actually, even now, I'm challenged. Back in the 1950s, he was, he was writing, writing. Didn't really think about the church. 
thought about it a little bit, but actually writing, writing about these Indians. So they go, they reach these Indians, they finally make contact on the beach. Five of them get hacked to death. It shocked America. And as a result of that, thousands of young Americans went on mission abroad. Thousands risked their lives. In this country, in the early 1970s, a, a young woman wanting to be radical for Christ, finding no room for it here, goes to Hong Kong, goes to the walled city. She doesn't just change the face of the walled city, she influences the face of Christianity, Jackie Kennedy. Until the charismatic movement, if you were a radical Christian, George Verwa started Operation Mobilization in the 60s. Yeah? That began with him seeing hundreds of, of students saved at his college. If you were a radical Christian, you either became a ministry or you went on mission. You didn't stay in the church. Because revivals had been wonderful. They'd touched lives and everything. But actually there was something that wasn't quite there in the church. Then in the late 60s, early 70s, as the charismatic movement began to, I suppose, began to emerge, and what that looked like was, was Christians be, being filled with the Holy Spirit, beginning to speak in tongues. Some of them, not all of them, some of them thought this. The Holy Spirit has come in order that the church might be restored. That there is something missing here. Something isn't quite right. We are to return to this when it comes to the church. We're to, turn to the, return to the relationships that we read about in Acts, in Ephesians. We're to return to the way God intended the church to be as his answer. Because it wasn't the answer. Jesus was the answer. But actually Jesus had given authority.